We're doing Ephesians this quarter, and uh, Paul's letters are cool. I don't know. They're cool to me. I don't know um, if they interest you, but they're loaded. And so I'm trying to distill them down, uh, but they are complex and beautiful. And so I hope that you experience that tonight. And Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, if there's a place to camp out in Scripture for months... um, it's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and we're going to try to do it uh, in one sitting tonight. Um, but it is it is beautiful prose and it is beautiful truth, so I hope you're blessed by it. I'll read it for us. This is Paul's words to the church at Ephesus. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your servant, Paul. And there's so much beauty here and there's, and yet we're also confronted here. Uh, there is bad news and there is great news. And we need to hear it all. We can't understand one without the other. Bad news without the great news is hopeless. And the great news without the bad news is empty, dear God. So I pray, Holy Spirit, press upon us. Teach us uh, what you have for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, A couple of weeks ago, a lot of y'all know I like stand-up comedy a bunch. Um, And all of y'all know I'm not very good at it because I've tried it up here. But uh, (laughs) I was watching Aziz Ansari's new set, and Jack Craddock and I were talking about it this morning. And... uh, in his new set, which I don't know if I necessarily recommend, um, but it's good. He talks about, he's like, you know, I don't dislike anybody based on race, race or ethnicity or sexuality or anything like that. But if you're a white dude who wears this baseball hat backwards and a button-down shirt at a bar, I pretty much hate you. And, uh, and he goes on to talk about the woo girl and the slam-down-the-shots, all right, guy. And he talks about how the woo girl... And the slam the shots down, all right, guy, are basically the two worst kind of people in the world. And he's like, nothing positive or uplifting has ever been said when a guy, a white dude in a button-down shirt with a baseball hat on backwards, slams down a shot and says, all right. He's like, you never hear him say, slam it down, all right, all right, y'all, let's be really, really quiet and respect each other's space, okay? And, uh, and after he riffs on that, on these terrible people, the woo girl and the all right guy, um, he says, I feel pretty bad, you know, making these generalizations, but I'm pretty confident I'm right. And, uh, and we all connect with Aziz because he reveals our heart because we all have an inner Aziz, I'm sorry, right? 
That's the sermon point. Um, just remember that. Jesus, help me with my inner Aziz. I'm sorry. Um, no, I make this point actually for this. You know what we're actually all awesome at? And uh, we're all awesome at seeing how everybody else is terrible. We have this inner prosecutor, right, that looks at our parents and our friends and our roommates, people that we like, people that we dislike, and what we're awesome at is diagnosing how they've all brought pain and misery into this world and about what they've done wrong and what's wrong with them. And what we also have, we have that inner prosecutor that sees everybody else's flaw, and we also have an inner defense attorney that is ruthless, that just latches on to any criticism that comes toward us and, and destroys it. Anything that could, that could reflect negatively on us. We have these amazing kind of two things. This inner prosecutor that sees the problems of the world all out there and others. And this inner defense attorney that keeps any of that problem from, uh, keeps us from taking responsibility for any of it. For any of it. And, uh, you know, last week you might have seen the governor of New York made this big proclamation about how super conservative pro-life people are just not welcome in the state of New York anymore. Right? That's his posture. The problem is the super conservative people. And on the other end of the spectrum, when I moved to California from South Carolina, people in South Carolina made all these kind of similar disparaging statements from the other end of the ideological spectrum. Yo, you're going to California? That place can just break off and float out in the Pacific for all I care. Have you all heard this before? If you're from the South, maybe you've heard that kind of thinking. But you see, like, the liberal people think it's the conservative people's fault, and the conservative people think it's the liberal people's fault. What we're great at is thinking that everything that's wrong is other people's fault. And according to the Bible, you can't really be useful, and you can't really be restored, and you can't really be healed, and you can't really be changed. And in fact, you can't really even be human until you see that the greatest evil in your life resides in here. There's a, there's a, a story about G.K. Chesterton. He's a British writer from the mid-20th century, uh, he was interviewed by a journalist, and the journalist meets with him, and he starts the interview by saying, uh, Mr. Chesterton, what is wrong with the world today? And he expected him to go into systemic flaws politically and economically and moral flaws in people and in different worldviews. And the way Chesterton responds is, you know what's wrong with the world today? I am. And I want to contend, this is what I think Paul was teaching us through the letter of Ephesians, especially through this passage. Your best chance at joy, and joy is the best thing, and that's what you should aim for, your best chance at joy and your best chance at actually usefulness in this world as a human lies not in getting everything you want and getting stupid people to not do stupid things. But that's fundamentally how we think we get joy and how we become useful, is by getting everything we want and getting stupid people to stop doing stupid things. Our best chance at joy comes when we actually rightly assess ourselves, how we're broken, what God has done and He is doing. And if we don't understand the disease that resides in here, we will not recognize the cure and we will not seek it. And this is what Tim Keller said when he says, when we talk about sin, it is not you're trying to tell people, you don't know the truth and I have the truth. Actually, when we're talking about sin, what we're doing is saying, without sin, you can't understand yourself. 
the conversation about sin is not a finger-pointing conversation. The conversation about sin is there's so much confusion in our lives, and if you don't have the doctrine of sin as a part of the conversation and understanding yourself, you will never understand yourself. Throwing out the doctrine of sin, right, these first three verses, is actually giving you an incredible tool for finally understanding yourself instead of trying to understand yourself by blaming everybody else. I'm not saying there's not evil out there. There is. We're victims as well. But often we only think of ourselves as victims. The problem of the world is out there. And Paul is turning us to look in on ourselves and see the problem in here. So we're going to look at three things about sin and then we're going to see how God responds. Sin is a term that we're afraid of, we don't like, it sounds terrifying, it's not, it's not politically correct to talk about. Um, but Paul is teaching us about it right here and it's necessary and I want us to see three things. When he kind of expounds on it in three verses... This is what I think he means when he says dead in sin. Sin dehumanizes us, it enslaves us, and we're culpable for it. It's dehumanizing, it's enslaving, and there's culpability. I'm going to explain what that means. Paul, when he starts, says, and you are dead in trespasses and sins. This is the Ephesians before they met Jesus. This is all of us apart from Christ. Dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Paul's not speaking about physical death here. The Bible doesn't view human life as merely physical processes. To be alive is more than having brain waves and major organs functioning properly, having a beating heart. Being alive is way more than that. It is actually about being in touch with your meaning and purpose. And Christian or not, I suggest you probably actually agree with that. You actually on some level know being alive, human flourishing, is not simply physical processes. I know what being alive is, and I'm actually at Stanford to try to figure out to be alive. I want to get in touch with my meaning and my purpose so that I can flourish, so that all of your faculties, this is the biblical view of what life is, all of your faculties, your heart, your emotions, your psychology, your body, your mind, all of your relationships, your relationship with God and your relationship with people and your relationship with the physical world, they're all running at full bore, and you're flourishing in all of them. That's life. The Old Testament word for this kind of being alive is called shalom. We talked about it a little bit last quarter. Another good word, an English word, is flourishing. And it comes when all the things that make up you are in touch with their purpose and meaning and they're being used to their full potential for good. That's what the Bible means when it talks about glorifying God. If you want to know what glorifying God means, it doesn't mean... I might have used this example before. If you're a neurosurgeon, glorifying God is not trying to think about Jesus really hard while you're doing surgery. That's a terrible idea. You should think about people's brains while you're doing surgery. Glorifying God is when all of your faculties are working together well, psychologically, emotionally, socially, spiritually, professionally, physically. God intended you to have life and have it to the fullest, and that's what glorifies Him. But it's broken, and so what all of us feel... Is that life is not quite, we don't have that full life. It's not quite what we intended it to be. And so, and, and, and we even know that there are people who live less than human lives. And so we watch people who do detestable things or grotesque things, the really kind of overt, disgusting things, and we say, that is subhuman, that's animalistic, right? We actually say, that's not human flourishing. We actually begin to assign subhuman categories to their behavior and maybe even to their personhood, right? They're not humans anymore. They're animals. And their hearts beat and their brain waves are active, but they're so dysfunctional 
that we wouldn't say, okay, what, the way they're living, that's not life. And if that's true of the, of, of the really grotesquely bad people, it's still true of us, and we know it, because even us, the good, right, the quote-unquote good people, we're still actually reaching and searching and seeking to find something that makes us feel alive. And we have, maybe you even have those moments, right? There are those seasons, sometimes they're long, most often they're really short, where like, things are right. And your relationships are healthy, there's truth in them, and there's health, and there's love in them. Work is going well, you're accomplishing things, you're discovering things, there's healing, you're physically healthy. And you're like, whoa, this is it. But those seasons are so brief, aren't they? But for that moment, you're like, this is life. And what Paul is saying is actually we're dead in our transgressions. And most likely, in one way, to think about those moments where all of a sudden you come in touch with like, oh, this is life. That's just like we're being hit with the defibrillator, but it's never taking. And for a moment, we're awake, but it never takes. Because it always goes away, doesn't it? We find ourselves within a day or two at war in our relationships, at war with our body, and at war with our work. Life is gone again. Well, that's what Paul's saying when he's saying you're dead. Flourishing, shalom, life, it comes when all things are connected. Work, emotions, mind, relationship in the right manner. And death comes when we cut ourselves off from the life-giving head. This is Paul's big argument all throughout the first half of Ephesians. That what has broken, God made this world to flourish. And what broke it is when we cut ourselves off from the thing that gives life and structure to the world. That thing is God himself. That's why Paul's language up to this point, if you remember two weeks ago, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, Paul says, God's plan, His purpose all along for the fullness of time has been to unite, and actually the Greek is there is reunite as a prefix, to reunite all things back into Jesus so that there can be flourishing, so that there can be life. And he reiterates that several times, verse 22 in chapter 1, to reestablish Jesus as the head of all things. Death is what breaks out into the system of creation when we cut ourselves off from God, from the life-giving head, and God's business is restoring that relationship in order to restore life, which is not just physical processes, but human flourishing. Without Him, we're dead. We're, we're living less than life. And that's why I say where we are, we're functionally dehumanized. We're alive, but we're not fully human. Sin dehumanizes us. Secondly, it's slavery. When he says, you are dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The term walk means how we're oriented in life. We're oriented away from God, and he also says it this way. We lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. Paul is saying this. The term flesh means our sinful nature an orientation or a worldview or a way of looking at the world that doesn't include God. A way of interpreting everything, all of life, moving, analyzing, and deciding things with no reference to God. And the term world, when it talks about walking in the ways of the world, it means the same thing. What's cool is, some of you all know Andrew Gay. Andrew Gay's dad is like the leading global authority on the biblical understanding of the word worldliness. And this is what he said. It's an interpretation of reality that essentially excludes the reality of God from the business of life. It's imagining the world in a way that we ignore the real reality of God's gracious presence within it. 
Now, how does that lead us to slavery? Right? To live life oriented in a way to go through our daily life and our decisions as if God is not present, as if He doesn't exist. Paul says we're oriented in a worldly way in our sin. And what that means is we are then guided by the passions of our flesh. That's what he says. We have a master. And it's the desires of our flesh. And we're actually powerless against them. Because we all know, if you're here, if you're a Christian or if you're not, or you're not sure where you are, everybody basically knows what good living looks like, what the right and ethical life looks like. There's a consensus on most of the issues, on the ethical issues, right? Work hard, respect everybody, tell the truth, be generous, use edifying words, don't take what isn't yours, don't oppress, don't murder, don't hate. Everybody agrees with these kind of ethical things. 90% or more of ethics are almost universal. Nobody disagrees with them. We all know how we should live, for the most part. The question is this. If we all know how to live, why do we still do bad things? It's because sin is slavery. Simply knowing the right thing to do doesn't give us the capacity to do it. And we know it because all of us have walked into a situation where we're like, I am not going to do that thing that I know is not right. And we've set ourselves against it and we said, this time I'm not going to do that thing that I know is wrong. And we've all done it. You know why? Because we're enslaved to our passions. We found that we are powerless. Even knowing what is right. Even trying to like what is right. And believing what is right. I walked into that situation again. And my master slave, right, my flesh, I did it again. I'm actually enslaved to my passions. See, we actually think that the throwing, throwing off the restraints of God is going to let us live free and full lives, but nothing in nature says that is true. We have that conversation, you've had that conversation, you've thought it, I've thought it. I'm sure you have it on campus Oh, if we throw off the restraints, if, if we if kind of live a life with no rules, Christianity restricts. If we get rid of those restraints of kind of Christianity, then we'll have free and full lives. Nothing else in life or nature suggests that that's true. Nothing supports that idea that we need a world with no moral boundaries. And that's where we're going to be free to explore and write our own story. And then we're going to be alive. What sin does is it masks itself as freedom. Oh, this is freedom to let go of all these things. But it's actually slavery. It masks itself as freedom, but it's it's actually slavery. Freedom and full life don't come from the absence of boundaries. Freedom and full life don't come from the absence of boundaries, but actually from the establishment of the correct boundaries. Freedom and full life come from the establishment of the correct boundaries. This illustration is almost too simple, but follow me here for a second. A fish, in order to flourish, has to live within certain confined conditions. And to say, you don't have to live in those confined conditions. You can live outside of those boundaries. Don't be confined to that. Break all the rules. What happens to a fish when he gets outside of those confined conditions? He dies. We are not free when we have no boundaries. This is the main principle of all parenting. This is the main principle of all civil life and political science. That you are not free with no boundaries. That's the most idiotic idea we've ever had. Is that we are free when we finally have no boundaries. 
The absence of boundaries is not freedom, it's actually death. And death is the ultimate slavery. Freedom comes actually when we find the right boundaries to live within. And without God establishing himself and his boundaries in our lives, we're carried about by our passions and totally enslaved to them. And it's not just the more grotesque sins that we find ourselves powerless against, but even the more tasteful sins. Pride, materialism, elitism, greed, perfectionism. We're so enslaved to those, we probably don't even consider them sins. We maybe even consider them virtues. We don't even attempt to put up a fight against those because we're enslaved to them. We're carried along by whatever script is put in front of us. We are not free apart from God. We're actually enslaved to our impulses. And not a single one of you, none of you, no matter what you think of yourself or how much you think about freedom and you think that's insane, I believe that we should have no boundaries and people should explore reality for themselves without any rules, none of you will parent that way. And I hope if you think you're parent that way, you don't have kids because that's a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> but you actually won't parent that way. You'll know, for my children to have life and to have fullness, I need to give them boundaries. Because their impulses are not a trustworthy guide. And so actually, what's interesting in parenting is, you are the one who battles their slave master. You are the one who conquers their slavery to their passions and their impulses. The parent is. Y'all be great parents. Pretty sure. Sin, um, it dehumanizes us and it, it enslaves us. The loss of boundaries is totally slavery. Lastly, sin makes us culpable. If sin is the breaking of God's design, if it's cutting us cutting ourselves off from Him and embarking on life in the manner that we choose, separated from the life giver, and if that breach of relationship is actually the cause of pain of suffering, if that breach of relationship is the cause of death and the cause of slavery, and it is the breaking of beauty, creation was made simply to be beautiful so that God enjoyed it, that was His purpose, then we're culpable. And that's what Paul means when he says, children of wrath, we are by nature children of wrath, people for whom God's wrath is coming because we broke his beauty. And it's hard to stomach. I'm not, that's hard to process, and that's hard to talk through, and it's not comfortable. And if you're always comfortable reading the Bible, you're not reading it rightly. God will unsettle us all the time. But I want to say this, true love doesn't exist apart from wrath. True love always hates whatever destroys beauty and the object it loves. Wrath is absolutely a part of love. And the reality is, although we grow nervous when we talk about being children of wrath, we actually daily, every, everybody today participated in the exact thing that we object to in God. And you were right for doing it. We actually all did exactly to the world around us what we're upset with God doing for us. Because this is what happened today. I'm guessing for most of us. Some of y'all coded. Uh, most of y'all did. Not coded in the hospital. We coded in, you know. <laughs> I didn't know why y'all laughed at that. Y'all did, uh, uh, you know, all of y'all did ridiculous amounts of P sets. Um, some of you wrote papers. Y'all did work today. And in the process of doing your work, and your code, and your problem set, and your paper, you produced something that made your paper, or your program, or your problem set ugly. It made it discordant and dysfunctional. And you're like, oh, this is ugly. And ugly, guess what that gets? That gets like a C, right? And so what did you do when there was something that was a part of your creation that made your creation ugly? You did not hesitate to delete it. 
because you wanted to craft something beautiful. That's what the wrath of God is. I made something beautiful and I will not hesitate to delete what destroys it. The wrath of God is actually probably the principle of God's personality everybody agrees with and participates the most in personally. We all do that all the time, as well you should. It's the characteristic of God that we have most in common with Him, but I understand it's troubling. But He loves beauty. And that's why our children wrath, because we brought so much discord and so much ugliness in His creation. Sin, this thing in us, we're dead in it, we're enslaved to it, and we're culpable for it. And then in verse 4, these are the jarring words. If there's... I have a lot of Bible tattoos I want. I'm not brave enough to get a tattoo. But this would be top two, if not number one. Ephesians 2, verse 4, the first two words, but God. I think that would be a cool tattoo. The trajectory of humanity and of our lives and of creation is verses 1 through 3. And we lack the capacity individually and corporately to change that trajectory And our only hope is but God. And what it's not, and what it doesn't say is, but I and God. I pray. I turned it around. I've got the right sexual orientation. I'm generally conservative. I'm generally liberal. I'm not like those other people. But I try to read my Bible and God. It's not, but I did something and God came alongside It's this. It's me, my life, my efforts, my religious observance, my goodness, all needed a but God. Pay attention to your self-reflection in your relationship with God. If, If you're a Christian, who is often the primary actor in your stories? How often are your stories, but I, when I, or I finally? That's not Christianity. That's actually Christian-looking humanism. And the doctrine of sin that Paul just handed us tells us that any story that starts with, but I, is equally marred by sin, by death, by slavery. It's just pious-looking death. There's no Christianity whose beginning or ongoing chorus is, but I. The hope of the gospel is, but God. And if you're a Christian, in your private reflection and in your conversation, see what happens if you actively stop thinking and speaking as if you're the primary actor in your spiritual life. In your salvation, in your healing, in your transformation. And start thinking and start speaking. Just try this exercise to add these words, but God. That's the story of Christianity. That's the good news. That is the grace of God intervening. And if you're not a Christian... Stop wondering, am I going to turn this around? Do I want to turn this around? Do I want to choose this path? And instead, just know this, that as you come around the preaching of God's Word, you're getting dangerously and beautifully close to a but God moment. And I hope you do. But it will not be a but I moment. Grace comes in. What is it? What is God's answer to sin? This is grace. It's His undeserved and unmerited favor for the people who broke shalom. For the people who are dead in their sins, slaves of sin, and for the people who are guilty, who are culpable. That's us. 
Paul's letters are confusing because his sentences are really long. And in the Greek, two, um, in chapter 2, verse 1 through 7 is an incomplete sentence. And the verb of that sentence, the whole actually discourse on sin, the first three verses, are just clauses and phrases. They're actually not the main action of the sentence. The subject of the sentence is in verse 4. It's actually, but God. This is where the subject of the sentence starts. And the verb of the sentence is actually in verse 5. Made you alive together with Christ. The summary, the sentence that grounds verses 1 through 7, that is verses 1 through 7, is this. God made you alive together with Christ. Everything else are the context and the whys and the hows. But Paul's main point is this. God made you alive together with Christ. By grace we're made alive, and Christ it comes by grace. First question, what makes you a candidate for grace? Paul explains it very clearly. Why is grace offered? What makes somebody a candidate for it? Is it by growing up in a Christian family, by being pretty morally decent, by reading your Bible? None of those things. But God, why? Because He's rich in mercy and because of the great love with which He loved us. Because He's rich in mercy and because of the love with which He loved us. This is important. The basis of God's love is not anything in you that got His attention. It's simply His character. What makes you a candidate for grace is His character. Some of y'all have heard this before. Elizabeth and I have our little kind of marriage catechism that we speak to each other all the time. Um, And it's fun and it's cute, but we're very intentional about the way we've worded it. You know, when we're saying things to each other, Elizabeth will say, you know, she'll give, she'll drop the L word, right? We do that in marriage. I love you. And I'll say, why do you love me? And what we normally think, maybe what you think, is when you say, why do you love me? And, and a lot of times what we're doing is we're fishing for a compliment. Oh, you love me because I'm a wonderful person, right? Because I, whatever it is. And Elizabeth always says, and I say it back to her, she says, I love you because I promise to. So she doesn't say, I love you because you're a great father and you're a great husband because you do CrossFit, and that's so cool. She's really impressed by that. (laughs) She doesn't list the the great things about me, because you know what? The great things about me are great sometimes, and they're terrible at others. And if her love for me was conditioned on how I performed as a husband and a father and a leader and a worker, then guess what? Her love would fluctuate with my character. But her love for me is not based on my performance. Her love for me is based on her promise. What kind of relationship do you want to be in? Do you want to be in a relationship? Is there security in a relationship where someone says, I'll love you as long as you perform? P.S. You can do that in a dating relationship, but you can't marriage, but that's, and that's biblical. We'll talk about that later if you're thinking about getting married. In dating, you'll be like, ah, I don't have to love you anymore, that way at least. But that sounds terrible. Don't worry about it. I'm right. I'm right on this. Elizabeth's love for me is based on her character. That is freedom. That is love. That is safety for me. God's love for you is based on His character. That is freedom. And that is love. And that is safety for you. What makes you a candidate is just needing His love. So what does He do with His love? What does He do with His rich mercy and His grace and His overflowing love? He says this, By grace you've been saved. And what does He mean? He spells it out. You're made alive together with Christ, raised up with Christ, and seated with Christ. What does His grace do? Make you alive together with Christ, 
raised you up with Christ and seated you with Christ. What is Paul talking about? What does that mean, right? That sounds odd. He's talking about the things that are Jesus's. You should hear some echoes or some shadows in that language. uh, Made alive, raised, seated. Resurrection, ascension, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. These are the things that Jesus does. Resurrection, ascension, seated at the right hand of God. Paul is explaining the doctrine of union with Christ. That's the heart of Christianity. For us to have life, to be free, and to be rendered innocent, we have to be in Christ. What does union with Christ mean? It means this. What is His is yours. His resurrection, His ascension, His session. And what is ours is also His. So His death is our death. He received the wrath of God so that we wouldn't. His life is our life. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. His life becomes ours. This is the way prophet Isaiah says it. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of His righteousness. Jesus' perfect obedience is yours. So that when God, if you are in Jesus, when God looks at you, He sees perfection. That's all God sees. You see different things, I see different things. That's not the way God looks at you. If you are in Christ, what is Jesus's? His perfection, His perfect obedience, His righteousness, His perfect love is all credit to you. And that's how God sees you. That's what it means to be united with Christ. He dies your death and He gives you His life. What is Jesus's is yours. What does God do with grace? He gives you Jesus, He unites Him to you. Now, what is that? Union with Christ is still mystical, and, and, and it's hard to understand, but maybe this illustration will help you. In seminary, I had the best job I'll ever have. I was a personal shopper for a really wealthy family in Ladue, um, which is right outside of St. Louis. And personal shopping, it's cool. You don't need a college degree to do it. If they had offered me insurance, I might still be personal shopping in St. Louis and not being here today. But... Um, with kids coming more quickly than we could handle, we need to get some health insurance. But uh, this family was very wealthy. They lived next, their next door neighbor were the bushes, the B-U-S-C-H bushes, the Anheuser-Busch bushes. Um, that's the kind of wealth they are. Those are the kind of circles they ran in. And uh, they would send me out to run these exotic errands, carrying like thousands and thousands of dollars and driving these exotic cars. And I didn't have any business being any of the places that they sent me. And so I would go into Neiman Marcus at least once a week. And uh, the way I looked, I, I look better now than I did then. Look at the grad students. I look like a grad student. Hopefully I'm improved a little bit. I don't know. But I was a grad student, and I had, like, unironed khakis. I just threw you all under the bus. Right? Unironed khakis, which I, if you're in California, you maybe you've never seen khakis before, but in the South, so that's still a thing. But unironed khakis, golf shirt. Just ratty and unkempt. And I would walk into Neiman Marcus. And when I walked into Neiman Marcus every single time, the manager would see me and he would come up and he'd walk with me. And he'd offer me drinks and he'd walk with me through the store and always make sure I was happy. And the reason why is because the McAlpins spend a ton of money at Neiman Marcus. Now, why would somebody who's a ratty grad student get the most luxurious attention at Neiman Marcus? It's because of this. Mr. McAlpin said... My money is at Britain's disposal. So when Britain walked in, you know who the manager at Neiman Marcus saw? He saw Charles McAlpin. 
and I got the treatment Charles McAlpin is supposed to get at Neiman Marcus. That's what union with Christ is. When God looks at you, He sees Christ, and you get the treatment that Christ gets from His Father. He doesn't see underdressed, poor grad student. He doesn't see sinner. He doesn't see addict. He doesn't see death. He doesn't see slave. He doesn't see shame, and He doesn't see guilt. If you're in Christ, He looks at you and He sees Christ. A couple of points of application to close. How do you get this? That's a big point. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. How do you get this? You get this by faith. For years, I read that verse. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Maybe you've read that too. It's a big one. And that second phrase, and this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. And I wondered, what's the gift of God? Is it the grace or is it the faith? And it wasn't until my Paul class in seminary that the professor was like, it's both. Stop trying to choose between the two. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. None of this is your own doing. This is the gift of God. Obviously, grace is from Him, but actually faith is from Him as well. Faith is not something that you work up and produce and show to God. He's like, that's pretty good faith. All right, you're in. (laughs) It's not how it works. Faith, this is a subtle point. I hope you get this. I think it's... I think it's the key to life and happiness. Faith is created in the subjects, right? I'm trying to have faith. How is faith created in me? It's created by the object we trust in. The way that faith is actually birthed in our hearts, the ability to trust in God, is not by us turning inwards and working up some sense of resolve. Faith is actually birthed or engendered or given or produced in us by the object we trust in. This is almost so simple it's hard to understand. I'll try three examples to kind of maybe... Today, you sat down in a lot of chairs. You trusted those chairs to hold you up. You actually had faith. Why? Was it because you had internal resolve that they would hold you up? No. You trusted the chairs because you looked at them, and it was reasonable. And it was actually the chair that gave you confidence it would hold you up. You looked at it, you saw other people sitting, and you said, that'll hold me up. Your confidence that the chair would hold you up was not something internal work you worked up. It had everything to do with staring at the chair and seeing others sit in it. A climbing rope. Do you trust any rope? No. You wouldn't trust a cheap piece of twine. Why? Because you would look at it and say, okay, that can't hold me. And it would be a terrible idea to think, okay, even though I don't think that can hold me, I'm going to work up a bunch of internal resolve and then hang on it. Right? You get faith in the climbing rope by looking at it. I trust Elizabeth to be faithful in her marriage. Right? It doesn't, you, you don't trust me to be faithful. My faith in her is not like, I'm just going to have a ton of resolve and then she's going to be faithful. No, I know her character. And because of her character, trust started happening in my heart. The trust in my heart came from her. Not from me staring inside and trying to have a bunch of resolve to trust her. And in fact, I would say that's a kind of a dumb way to go through life. Faith has reasons. It's reasonable. Faith is actually not blind. And blind faith, I would say, is foolish. 
Faith comes from looking at God, examining Him, and asking questions. It's not turning inside to try to trust really, really, really hard. What this means is to get faith, you just need to read the Bible. Not to make God happy, not so you can feel better as a Christian. Those are foolish reasons to read the Bible. Read it to get faith so you can see who God is and say, I can trust that. There are great reasons to trust Him. And He will work faith in you. Read the Bible and see He's trustworthy. He's good. He can heal somebody even like me. He can forgive somebody even like me. Is there room for me? Is there life in Him? If you want faith, you get it from God. By looking at Him. And you begin to realize, if I rest in Him, He will hold me up. Faith in the heart of the subject actually comes from the object examined from God Himself. So go to the Bible not to make Him happy. If your faith is weak and it's struggling... What happens when you read Isaiah 42 and God says, you know what, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out, snuff out. You know what happens? If if your faith is weak and struggling right now, my guess is reading that in front of you, you're like, you know what, there's more faith here now because I heard from God. Is your faith threatened by sin in your own life and you're losing your identity again? Then you read 1 John, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive. If our hearts condemn us, we have somebody greater than our hearts. Is your faith threatened by your sin? Go look at God. He will give you faith. Read 1 John. Is your faith full of doubt? Read Mark 9, where the father of the sick child really wants his child to be well. And he says, Jesus, I don't understand healing and I don't understand you. I believe. Help my unbelief. Isn't that good news? Isn't your faith already strengthened just hearing that you can pray? I believe, help my unbelief. You go to Scripture, you go to God, He works faith in your heart. Faith is the product of the thing you're trusting in, not the product of this internal process of becoming, of having resolve. What does it do in you? God finishes this verse on how God gives grace and faith, and He tells us, since it's all from God, nobody can boast. This point's huge. Every other form of trying to fix the world and fix what's wrong in us will eventually produce judgment and oppression. What grace does, because there's two... Pro- there's, you're either fixing the world by effort or by grace. By work or by grace. By law or by grace. What grace does is it actually silences the inner prosecutor and the inner defender. It changes you in a different type of person. But if you decide that the problem of the world is solved, the main thing is solved by effort and by law, that people aren't good enough and so they all need to act better and that's how things improve. I'm not good enough so I'm going to act better. So healing and hope and transformation is actually reserved only for people who work hard enough and live the right sorts of lives. Then by nature of people who don't work hard enough, they actually... They, they haven't acquitted themselves well, so they're culpable. And you see, if it's not by grace that the world's fixed, but rather by your resolve and your will and your effort and your commitment to the law, then you will rely on effort to fix the world. And what will happen is it will produce a class system in your worldview. Those who are blank enough, whatever it is for you, and those who aren't. And you might even do good things with your effort. But you won't be becoming the right sort of person. You'll become the sort of person who views the world through the lens of good people and bad people. According to whatever paradigm you might be, it might be conservative Christian, it might be liberal Christian, it might be atheist, agnostic, it might be Democrat, Republican, but you start viewing the world, there's good people and there's bad people. And I've chose the right path. 
And once you separate people into classes, you start to take dignity from the people of the other class, and that's where enmity and oppression is born. Oppression occurs because we don't view grace as the solution to the world. They're born when we think the key to the world, the hope and healing and transformation is not by grace to sinners, but the key is work and effort and self-improvement. But what grace does is grace never allows its recipient to think he or she's better than anybody else. Grace will even drive you to live well, to do good things, but you'll be a totally different kind of person because you'll be humble. And you won't be impressed by your humility either. There's a story about Charles Spurgeon, this Baptist preacher in the late 19th century in England. An elderly lady approached him after a sermon he preached one day. He's a, one of the I mean, greater preachers in England's history in the last 200 years. And she said, Mr. Spurgeon, you are the most arrogant and obnoxious and annoying man that I've ever heard of. And I wanted to be the first, body, first person to tell you that. And uh, as the story goes, everybody around him kind of grew quiet. And he responded and he said, ma'am, you don't even know the half of it. He understood the gospel. I know I've gone long tonight. Close with this last verse because it's beautiful. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, what now? We are his workmanship restored by grace. The relationship that when broke brought dysfunction in the world, now by God's work is restored. And we're not simply redeemed, we're redeemed for a purpose. To actually go and begin the new kind of flourishing that God intended. To live, and to relate, and to sing, and to create, and to work. No longer in the dysfunction of a life destroyed by sin, but actually crafting together a beautiful life that God prepared beforehand for you. That God actually always intended. We are God's handiwork. Creation is His handiwork. And now restored to our life-giving head... Life is no longer, we said this last week, it's no longer an arena in which you go to find and craft an identity. It's actually your playground where you can craft beauty simply for God just because He enjoys it. So what is life now? Every relationship, every conversation over coffee, every problem set, your major, your career, every part of your daily life, exercise, food, music, jokes, Everything is something that you get to do, no longer needing those things to validate you, but you actually do it for no other reason than then, but to show it to God and to make Him happy. Y'all have heard me use this illustration before. Life now in the restored family of God is nothing more than this. This is what happened earlier this afternoon. Little Britain started shooting baskets. She's never shot a basket before. She started playing basketball by herself in the driveway. And she shot and she shot and she, she kept a count of all the baskets she made. She made 82. Um, a little OCD going on there. but um, She shot and she would come in and she would ask me things like what to do. And, you know, talk about bringing her elbow in and that kind of stuff. And, and after she was done working at improving, seeking perfection, all those kinds of things, she came back in and she said, Dad, come and see. And the height of her joy was just showing me her work. And that's why she did it. Just cause, and the height of her joy was not simply the basketball itself. She enjoyed that a ton, and as well she should. The height of it was when her dad thought, oh, that's cool, as she did it. Basketball wasn't her identity. It was just something she tried to do well.
because it was fun. And the only thing more fun than basketball for her was playing basketball in front of me for no other reason than she thought I would like it. She didn't do it to get me to love her more because our relationship is secure. She didn't do it to prove that she was better than other people. She didn't do it to prove something to herself or to craft an identity. She simply did it and tried to do it as best as she could for no other reason than she liked me and she thought I would think it's awesome. And she's right. And it was awesome. Restored to God, His workmanship, the good works God prepared beforehand, they're nothing more than that. Your problem set is just, hey, here's the best thing to do. What do you think? Is that cool? And God's like, that's pretty cool. Instead of, i got to do my problem set so I can get a job at Goldman Sachs, so I can have a ton of money, so I can buy a ton of crap and then die, right? <laughs> that was the Holy Spirit endorsing me. <laughs> God's intention is for you to enjoy putting together a beautiful life. Not to earn His favor, but to put together a beautiful life just because you already have His favor and you know that He think it was cool. That's all it is. Sin is the problem, and grace is the only true, helpful, beautiful answer. Let's pray.